Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Now we have data. Now we can really take a look at numbers and see that Anheuser-Busch did you know what to the bed when they engaged this insanity of a marketing decision that was not transphobic that people responded to it. It wasn't bigoted that people responded to it negatively. It was Bud Light hating their client base. It was nonsense to allow Dylan Mulvaney to have some kind of brand ambassadorship. This man who claims to be a woman, not not a woman, he claims to be like this, this caricature of a woman, this child. It is misogynistic. It is disgusting. I don't know why anybody's okay with it. I don't know why, why I don't understand why anybody would cheer such a thing. It's ugly. It is wrong. And most importantly, they forgot what we drank the beer for, which was to get away from the politics. We're done with the day. We did our work. We took care of our families, and now we just wanted to have a beer and relax and say, all right, all right, good day, good day. Or, oh, man, crap-ass day. Or, oh, man, I hate my gig. I'm going to drink this. I'm going to relax, and then I'm going to do good things with, with my family. Or I'm going to get together with friends and just have a great time. Bud Light put politics into our life, and we didn't ask for it. We didn't want it. We don't need it. They did this, and they have no one to blame but themselves. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Here, here's the numbers. Because I said at the time when this happened o- over a month ago, and they're like, oh, look at, the, look at the share price. Look at the valuation. They've lost billions of dollars. They lost it on paper, and we have all seen these things rebound. Nike was the great example. Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee. Nike's defending it. Nike lost for about an hour and a half. But the people who are at the core of Nike, meaning the the core Nike purchaser, they weren't bothered by any of this. They were fine with it. And Nike was, was, was fine after like, you know, no time. When Bud Light first started having these drops, it was like, whoa, 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 everyone just settled down. We don't know yet. We're going to need time. We're going to need numbers. I said I was going to need four months. Maybe I need less time. In the first three weeks, as reported by Fox Business, sales of Bud Light, it was the first three weeks of April, Bud Light dropped the equivalent of 1% of the company's overall global volume for that period. Okay, that's a number. They get a little more detailed. For the week ending April 22nd, Bud Light sales in retail stores fell 21.4%. Compared to a year ago, Coors Light and Miller Light each saw their sales grow by about 21%. That's an analysis of Nielsen data by a group called Bump Williams Consulting. Now, that's real numbers. That is showing that a boycott has taken place. It's not even a boycott. People have said, forget you, I'm moving on. As an act, as an easy act of defiance, they just said, you know what? I'm not getting Bud Light. I'm getting Miller Light. I'm not getting Bud Light. I'm getting Coors Light. It's so easy to do. We have equated this many times to, you remember when people were getting on Chick-fil-A's case because the CEO said, I believe in traditional marriage. (gasps) Shocking. That's not a sign of bigotry. They weren't treating anybody poorly 
in the stores. Chick-fil-A treating people poorly in the stores. It's, it doesn't happen. Their training and their skill set, their people, always at this level of top notch. And people were giving Chick-fil-A a hard time. And so I, I, I don't even know who, who decided this or how it got to be. There was a day everybody was going to go buy Chick-fil-A. You mean I can stand up to the nonsense by buying lunch? I'm going to buy lunch anyway. That's exactly the kind of thing that works. I'm going to buy lunch no matter what. I'm going to buy dinner no matter what. You mean I can show that this is nonsense and I can be supportive of people having an opinion by getting some chicken strips? You you call the spouse, I'm bringing home dinner tonight. It's Chick-fil-A. And the spouse was like, perfect. And everybody had Chick-fil-A. I lived in California at the time in, in the San Fernando Valley. And I, I, I can picture the Chick-fil-A and the line of cars trying to get in and people standing in line. They stood in line. Everyone was happy as could be. No one cared. They, it was a story to them. Yeah, isn't this whole thing nuts? Yeah, figure I'd be supportive. What the heck? Everybody, when you can create an opportunity that's so easy for people to engage in their protest by not changing a single thing about their lives, it wasn't a, hey, don't eat Chick-fil-A anymore. Just like with, with, with Bud Light, no one said, don't drink beer anymore. Just pick a different one. And people said, I can pick a different one. I can totally pick a different one. As a matter of fact, watch what I do. And they then went with intent for their weekend trip to pick up a case because they're going to see some friends do whatever. And they said, nope, I'm buying Coors Light. And then they got to the counter and said, oh, yeah, no Bud Light for me. And they bought their beer. It was so easy to do. You tell me that Bud Light didn't understand how tenuous their relationship is. Brand loyalty is real as long as you're loyal to the brand. And Bud Light was not loyal to the brand, wasn't loyal to the people who bought it. That vice president of marketing, who you know she's going to get another job, paying more money, people are going to call her a hero. You know they're going to give her awards. They're going to protect this woman every which way but, but loose. She hated the customer. Don't hate your customer. Don't hate these people. And how dare you think there's not going to be an effect. And yes, people are losing money. And certainly, I'm sorry for that. But Bud Light's going to learn. It's just going to be a lot more learning ahead. Because this does not get resolved for them quickly. Keep it here and find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. In Indianapolis, while we deal with the tremendous issues that exist in in crime and and homelessness and a a feel about the city and and a failure of leadership, as I have often discussed, we see that there is opportunity and there is growth and there has been investment. We're talking about Alanco, whether we talk about what uh, Ursal Ozdemir and the Keystone Group are doing with 11 Park, which is absolutely changes downtown and you now have this really um kind of special area there from lucas oil to where this is going to be at the former diamond chain building and what's going to come a- around it you have the complete redo of, of gamebridge Fieldhouse and what the pacers have, have done there to really shift 
where where downtown is. And, and then you have the questions of what's going to happen with the Circle Center Mall, which is historically an, an amazing story about how business got together to say, how do we grow a downtown and what it's going to become? Tony Katz, good to be with you. But then there's the question of exactly what should the city be doing and is this the right move? As Mickey Shuey reported from the IBJ, he covers all the real estate things, city, meaning Indianapolis, to take over financing of a $510 million hotel at Pan Am Plaza. Gary Dick joins us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. And you've got the story there at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. The Hogsett administration, Mayor Joe Hogsett, taking over the financing from Kite Realty Group's trust redevelopment of Pan Am Plaza. Start from the bit, the basics. What was going in here, this, this Signia Hotel? What happened, and what does this mean? Yeah, uh, Tony, you, you teed it up, you know, I think, pretty well. Uh, this is a Signia Hotel, Hilton-branded hotel that the city announced uh, actually several years ago. Uh, pandemic hit, obviously had a big impact on this. Uh, a, a huge development, 40-story hotel, 800-plus rooms, uh, really uh, a, an addition to the skyline that would be significant, in addition to the convention uh, uh, piece, the convention model that Indianapolis has as well, so very significant. But uh, as you mentioned, the city announced late last week, Mickey Shuey from the IBJ with a, really some good reporting on this, uh, in terms of the city taking over financing. Kite Realty says it can't. Uh, do the deal. It can't put a deal together in this rising interest rate environment. Uh, and so the city uh, believes that it is important enough to step in uh, and actually make the financing uh, happen. Kite Realty Group will continue to develop this hotel, which now is uh, pegged at around $510 million, and that price expected to go up uh, actually uh, from here. $510 million, uh, the city would finance it and then pay off bonds with uh, revenues from the hotel, future revenues from the hotel. How is it possible that Kite doesn't have the financing? Is this a conversation of interest rates or is this a conversation of, and I'm not trying to engage in any level of disparagement, I'm asking, bad management? Did they bite off more than they can chew? How did this come? Yeah, I, I think and if you uh, listen to uh, to the city and, and uh, the folks uh, from Kite, they say it's uh, it's market dynamics, tightening commercial real estate market, along with uh, with interest rates that have uh, uh, increased uh, what nine, ten times uh, over the last uh, you know year or so. So in that environment, uh, Kite does not believe it can put the financing package together to get it done. The city believes that this hotel is so crucial to the city's convention business, crucial to get those bigger conventions uh, that Indianapolis increasingly is is competing for and to keep uh, events that the city currently has that they need to step in, uh, step in and put the deal together. Talking to Gary Dick from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Let's pretend that that makes sense, which I I get interest rates, but you're talking about a $510 million investment. There were people who certainly wanted to engage this. I remember when we first had this conversation because it was about the Signia, and then there was another hotel that was going to be smaller, and we had to have both hotels. 
failing to to come up with the money and the city saying that's all right we'll take it over never mind the first part why is the city getting involved in a hotel business and how does this relate to what we're seeing in speedway where right across from the track we have got this half-started hotel that isn't going anywhere and i have said that if the city of speedway wants to put into it they should because you can't leave this thing half started in the case of pan am plaza nothing's been started so why is the city getting involved yeah i think again i think the city feels as though this is a project that's critical from a business and economic development standpoint, uh, in growing the convention business, which obviously is very important to the uh, to the city. Now, I will say also, you're going to hear. You heard uh, a year plus ago uh, opposition from a, a number of hotel uh, operators in downtown Indianapolis opposing this project. This is before the city got involved. I think you're going to be hearing uh, more from them in the uh, in the coming days, questioning why the city of Indianapolis is getting involved in this project uh, at, at all uh, in, a, in a private sector project at all. So I think you will hear uh, some rumblings and grumblings from folks uh, in the downtown Indianapolis hotel market who, who who feel who will say that they don't believe this this hotel is necessary it will impact uh, the uh, the market in a negative way. So I think you're going to hear more about this. This measure goes to city council, I believe, tomorrow night uh, for its first uh, first reading. Uh, so I think you'll hear a lot about uh, this move uh, by the city. But again, I think if you ask the city why they're doing it, they say they believe it's in the best interest uh, of the uh, of downtown Indianapolis and that comeback. And you mentioned, uh, I think you did a great job of mentioning some of these projects that are underway now. Uh, be it uh, the Elanco project along the banks of the White River, what's going on in and around Gainbridge Fieldhouse, 16 Tech is another piece of this. The big question mark uh, is uh, is Circle Center and what's going to happen with that. But there are uh, a number of big-time projects that are underway or about to be underway that could, in fact, change the face of downtown Indianapolis. You know, this this leads us to a... I mean, it's a conversation that Republicans and Democrats would would have alike. What is the the, the job of, of the city here? In, in the case of Speedway, I'll go back to that. I make the arguments as clear as day that it's half done. Whatever happened, happened to, to stop it from happening. And Speedway is not better off with a half-completed uh, hotel across from the racing capital of, of the world, from the track, from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, it should get completed, but this hasn't been started yet. Isn't the answer here to find somebody else in the private sector to take this thing over? You know, and you, you read the, the the piece as you've got it there uh, from Mickey Shuey of your sister publication, uh, the Indianapolis Business Journal. Um, isn't Kite responsible? Is there a a financial recourse against Kite? And does if, if if this is something that they're going to say, you know what, <laughs> just kidding, who's going to trust them with future development in Indianapolis? Yeah, I think you know you, if you t- put this out in the private sector, perhaps uh, there are others who say we can't put together a deal of this size in this environment uh, with this tightening commercial real estate market, increasing interest rates. Uh, that the private sector can't get a debt. And that's why the city uh, is stepping in. Again, you're going to see, you're going to hear uh, people uh, push back on that, uh, I think, in a big way here in the coming days. Gary Dick, InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, Before I I let you go, there was at least a bit of good news 
that Newsweek has a published list of the top 450 companies for job starters in 2023. We have six of them, whether it's AM General, uh, Elevance, FW Benchmark, Wilhelm uh, Construction, uh, and, and a couple others. Is Do people look at this and say, ooh, this is a place I can get a job, or it just happens that six of the companies happen to be right here? Yeah, I don't know. You know, we, the, the, these kinds of uh, studies, surveys, whatever you want to call them, Newsweek, uh, you would think that this is a, a national publication that might have some uh, uh, some relevance. Um, you know, I think a few uh, of these do, a few of these reports, but it seems like they come out all the time. Uh, on uh, best place to start a business, best place for business, all these types of things. Uh, so uh, it, it certainly doesn't hurt, and it's certainly good to have multiple companies on a list like this uh, that get some national attention. And I think if you look at, uh, you know, whether it's Lafayette, the Lafayette area uh, being one of the top uh, housing markets in the country and those, those types of things, uh, any a bit of positive news about uh, the state or about communities in the state uh, can't hurt. Kerry Dick, InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter, at IIB. I appreciate you. And look, it, it is true of all of those kinds of things. There's no making sense of why they do these polls, how they do them, how they make these decisions. You just you just take the good ratings. The problem is that people really do believe them. And, and of course, you, when it's positive, you use it. When it's negative, of course, this isn't right. Um, but this this goes along with, with a conversation that showed that that Florida was uh, tops in education, education and higher education, which, of course, infuriates the political left because it's Ron DeSantis and he's banning books and he's stopping people from from uh, engaging in education. You can't say this. You can't say that. You know, all the lies they said about the parental bill of rights. They don't want parents to have rights. They're not interested in the parents having a say. They're only interested in the indoctrination part, parents shouldn't be allowed to speak out. When they do, they get called domestic terrorists. We've been through it. But we keep seeing these examples where the parent, oh, the parent doesn't have the expertise. The parent shouldn't have a say. It's all nonsense. And Ron DeSantis has been very clear and very loud in the idea that parents do indeed have rights. And then when you see that education in Florida is top-notch, according to U.S. News & World Report, I think it was U.S. News & World Report, yeah, you you have people saying, oh, how dare you? It's great for DeSantis. The problem is, is that I'm happy for, for Florida, but I want Indiana to be the top. I want Indiana to be the top place in education on a, on a secondary level and on a, on a uh, college level. And it's clear that we do solid work in the state of Indiana, IU, Purdue, Ball State, Marion, Notre Dame. Uh, it, it, it's, it goes on and on. And then everyone always leaves out Indiana State. They, they, they leave out University of Evansville. These places don't get the, the respect that they absolutely deserve. But it's, it's true. You take this, this polling and you, people utilize it uh, for every advantage. The extent that it should be believed or, or relied on, minimal. Minimal in, indeed. But if it means that, that education in Indiana, we, we say, okay, let's make sure we're Let's make sure we're, we're hitting on all cylinders. Let's make sure we're telling our story properly. Well, then uh, that part, if it, if it leads to that part, I'm all in. If it, if it causes the fire under people to say we got to do a better job at sharing exactly the good work that we do and fixing the things that we don't do well, I'm all in. This is Tony Katz today.
Talking to David Fleming right now. David Fleming joins us. WhiskeyAdvocate.com. Whiskey Fest is coming up in Chicago. That's going to be on the 12th of May at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago. And I will be there. Eat, drink, smoke. We'll be there. Eat, drink, smoke show, uh, dot com. Myself and Fingers Malloy. Uh, wait till you meet Fingers Malloy, sir. Uh, as we're having this yeah. conversation about, you know, what it takes to be able to, to I- enjoy whiskey, the, the explosion that has taken place. Over the really the last decade, maybe more. The explosion mm-hmm. over COVID. I mean, bourbon was this almost kind of forgotten about drink until until when? What was the start of the of the renaissance of bourbon 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago by now? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of different threads. There always are in these things. But the main thing is say 20 years ago, and you're right about the 10, 15 years, typical bourbon drinker was like a middle-aged gentleman in a bar. You know, that's who drank it. Uh, Not in all sections of the country, in many sections, though. Then we got this explosion in cocktails, vodka cocktails, you know, Sex in the City, the Cosmo, and all this stuff. And what happened, along came the millennial, reaches legal drinking age. He's uh, curious about cocktails. He starts making them at home. He starts looking at these old fashions and other things. Says, "Why don't I try this?" And you don't necessarily want to go to a bar every night. I'll go broke, you know. So he, they start buying whiskeys on the shelf, which were, you know, a bit frank to be honest, a bit cheaper back then, you know, fifteen years ago. And they start collecting these things, and they go, "Wait a second, you know, uh, little old me, twenty-eight year old, twenty-nine year old Joe Blow, I got myself a little whiskey collection. This is fun. I have some friends over. I do this. We make some cocktails. We also taste." And they suddenly, little by little become whiskey freaks and develop these palettes, you know, and the whiskey companies respond with, uh, Hey, you know, we have to come up with a lot of different expressions, a lot of different types of whiskeys, a lot of different labels. Cause these kids are not kids anymore. They're grownups, but are loving this stuff. Let's jump, you know, boom. It all just, nobody saw it coming. I have to say, but that's, that's the genesis of it. It went yeah. from the, the Part- middle-aged guy to women too, you know, men and women. Now you see a lot of women, at Whiskey Fest and all over whiskey events, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. You've seen the explosion of bourbon, the explosion of, of rye, the explosion of tequila, sipping uh, tequilas yeah. especially has been massive because of, uh, certainly in the United States, the tariff conversation that you're not worried about things coming overseas, there was no tariffs and stuff coming from, from Mexico made that cost uh, a, a little bit easier. But it's funny that we credit millennials because they get credited with a couple things that they've done right. They're going to spend yeah. their money they want to know exactly what they're getting. And most importantly, they really want to know the story of yes. what it is that they have. So did the distiller have to get better at sharing their story or, or was it better at providing the expression of the story in the actual juice? Well, they had to get much better at, at, at sharing their story. I mean, in, in the old days, which would go be, you go and talk in eighties, but even 20 years ago, the number of people visiting a visiting a distillery was like weird. Very few people right. did it, you know? Now, this, the beautiful visitor center is everywhere, and they've all got it. And it's their destination places, you know? I mean, back then, they'd be lucky if they got 5,000 visitors a year. Now they get, like, whatever, 500,000, some of them, you know? And so these places have become total destinations. It used to be like a, considered like a factory. Or Why would you go there? Just a bunch of pipes, you know? Right. Not anymore. There's no. barrels. It's uh, blenders. It's all the whole art, you know? 
Now it's now it's the mecca. Now it's the thing to do. Whether it's the Bourbon Trail down in Kentucky, uh, in in Indiana, we have made rye uh, the drink uh, of choice here because of well, we're we're good with corn. It turns out uh, we 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 met, we met some people. We took a poll. We do it pretty dang well. Um, yeah. The the explosion that's taken place over the last three four years because of COVID. If it was a surprise to see this millennial set. David, come into uh, this desire for a more premium drink and a story to go with it. What happened over the last three, four years, because people had time, dollars, and no place to go. I mean, best of luck if you're somebody who thought maybe you could buy a barrel or thought you could get into the game. Uh, You can't find barrels. The wood is an issue. Dear Lord, bottles are an issue if you're trying to bottle the thing. How much has the explosion over the past four or five years created an issue for the next 15, 20 years. Well, it's, I think the next 15 or 20 years will be okay because they've sort of had this stuff in place now, but for the here and now, you know, in a way the whiskey shortage was already there because what happened was these guys, Japan is the worst example of that. They stopped making a lot of whiskey. They cut back. They were closing, you know, lowering shifts, Scotland too. All of a sudden, boom, everything exploded in the last 10 to 15 years. And you said, they were caught behind, you know. The bourbon guys are big enough. They, they caught up fast. So now they've learned a lot of things, you know. They're not going to be shuttering any more distilleries or anything like that. They're going to be putting out plenty of juice, getting barrels. Now, obviously, the demand has put pressure on uh, things like glassware, things like barrels and stuff. But I honestly think we'll be okay. I don't think it's a crisis. I think they, uh, they've done a lot of planning. They've kind of learned their lesson, if you will, by this you know, tsunami that caught them by surprise. A good tsunami, you know, not a bad one. Right. Talking um, to yeah. David Fleming. Yeah. Uh, he is the executive editor over at Whiskey Advocate, W-H-I-S-K-Y, WhiskeyAdvocate.com. Whiskey Fest is coming to Chicago. That is on May uh, the 12th. So you're going to want to be there. I will be there along uh, with my Eat, Drink, Smoke co-host, Fingers Malloy. Uh the event like this, you know, we, we, we ask the question whether or not places like Chicago or other places give you a bit of a hard time. Oh, you want to have a big drinking festival in our city. Oh, we can't be for that. You said, no, no, no. They've worked with you. They know you. They're cool with it. What can they expect at Whiskey Fest and how does it differ from some of the other events that are out there? Well, it's big. First of all, it's like it's huge. You know, you go in there. The first thing you notice is how big it is. But I think, you know, it's really not in any way impersonal. These people will spend time with you that are pouring. You learn a lot about the whiskeys. You go in, there's a lot of tables. You have your little cheat sheet, your scorecard, you know, and you decide what you want to do. You know, you go, okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to highlight things with a yellow marker, you know, a little strategy beforehand. Say, okay, what am I going to taste here? Let's see. And you go through it and you go, okay, I'll do, we'll do this, 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 and this. There's all kinds of different strategies. You know, you might want to take a deep dive into one distillery and, uh, you know, try a few things. You might want to go with a category. Like I'm going to try the rise or the scotches or whatever. You know, I like to do uh, myself. I like the, the old whiskeys that are on that are on display that are being poured there. I mean, this year, I think uh, Gordon McPhail, which is a scotch whiskey bottler. They have some really old whiskeys like uh, I don't know. There's like a 1998 vintage and stuff like that. I think there's one 88 as well. And uh Michter's has some great, you know, the 20-year-old that they're pouring. So, And I think old, I think uh, old Pulteney is pouring a 25-year-old. 
So those are fun, but you can't spend all night with those. You got to do other things, but, uh, but it's very interesting to taste comparatively within a particular brand. You know, if you like Ardbeg, you know, I mean, I had this Ardbeg, but the Ardbeg, remember, as you know, is a peated whiskey from Isla. Those are the smoky ones, you know, from Scotland, you know, save those to the end. You don't want to blow your palate out with a smoky whiskey. So don't be embarrassed to say this doesn't have any peat in it. Right. If you're starting it early, you know, and, uh, so save those Peter ones. They're great. Save them, but they're good. The but, amount of time uh, we spend discussing the the idea that it's okay not to know. The, 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 the rules are not set in stone. The rules are what you like, what makes a good flavor, that, that's what you like, what is your palate. You don't know yet. It's why you got to try everything up and down the line. And this... This really brings this conversation of uh, whiskey in general, right? All bourbons are whiskeys, but not all whiskeys are bourbons. It depends on, of course, what the what the concentration is, what that mash bill is. You can read all about this in my book, Let's Go Bourbon. It's available at Amazon.com. That's called a plug, David Fleming. That's that's what we did right there for, for right. our book. But, yeah. But the whiskey conversation, there will be people who say, oh, I, I wouldn't drink a whiskey. I only drink bourbon. They, they self-snob. All right, because they're told that that's what the good stuff is. You're yeah. the expert. You're the pro's pro. WhiskeyAdvocate.com, you know, has those people, and it's sharing it with the masses. What, what's your rule of thumb? What, what is the rule of thumb of what you can expect from a whiskey, what you can ex- expect from a bourbon? And do you think that whiskey should just be this discarded beast? No, I mean, I think, I mean, what I look for, and I think this is something that uh, is a good place to start as a, as a taster, is uh, I hope it is anyway, like integration of flavors. Like you might get a lot of spice. You might get some oak. You might get some sweetness. But is it all coming together for you on the palate? Or are you getting a spike of oak and a spike of sweetness here and there? And it's kind of jagged. And it's not really it's not really happening as a unified thing. Is the, Are the flavors integrating? You know, that's key. And also the depth of the whiskey. If it tastes like very thin, it's like, eh, you know, what am I doing here? You know, that kind of thing. I want something with some depth with some real something you can savor. And then the finish is the clincher. You know, if you a, a, a really good whiskey will have a fantastically long finish and it'll just blow you away. You know, that's to me, that's the, the clincher. That's the ninth inning right there. Right. That's the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, you, so you like it when it lasts, you want it to coat the tongue. You want to feel it in the cheek. Where do you want to be with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you want that a little length and it just warms the body, whatever, you know, it's like beautiful winter night or anytime really, you know, you want, you know, you don't want to feel like it came up short, you know, basically, literally, you know, basically with it, that kind of thing. You want something that you really can savor and it lasts on the palate in a very pleasurable way, you know. So it takes some getting used to for some people. But yeah. the other thing is, like, add a little water. There's nothing wrong with adding a little water. You know, for people who say, ah, you know, this is, well, this is fire water, you know. Uh, my face is melting or whatever. No, no, no. Just add some water. The flavor is expand, you know. And you get all kinds of different sensations. They do that, too. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Some things get more intense. Some things get reduced. It brings down proof because that's exactly what water does. Talking to David Fleming of Whiskey Advocate, whiskeyadvocate.com. You can head over there and subscribe, and you can get it digitally. You get the, the hard copy. I think I, I think I, do I have a, a copy of, yeah, I do. I just see. That's right. That's right there. there. You go. I yep. happen to have a yep. copy of that with Cigar Aficionado just laying around. That's right. that's what we do over here. Um, let me, while I've, I've got you, um, give you one of the questions I get asked most, mm-hmm. uh, David, um, regarding bourbon and what is a bourbon, why isn't it a bourbon. Can you explain in 60 seconds or less 
what the heck Jack Daniels really is? Jack Daniels is a Tennessee whiskey, and it goes through a charcoal filtering process where they bring the juice through and clean it, filter it, do a thing. But it's really, other than that, it's basically a bourbon. That charcoal filtering makes it a Tennessee whiskey. Other than that, the mash bill, you know, 51% corn and more and all that kind of stuff is all exactly the same as a bourbon. But the difference is the charcoal filtering. That's it. You know, so basically a lot of Tennessee whiskeys really are bourbons, essentially, you know, but uh, without starting a brawl here. I, was, <laughs> I, I try to explain that to people constantly. Yeah. That question, more than any other, more right. than any other uh, gets asked. So Whiskey Fest is happening in Chicago on mm-hmm. uh, May 12th. You can still get a ticket. They're still yep. uh, available right there. It's an evening event, right? Yeah, yeah. It starts at uh, the VIP hour starts at 530. And you go in and taste a lot of good stuff. Then the general admission is uh, 6.30. I think the registration begins around 4.30 or 5. And, uh, yeah, and it goes till 9.30. You know, it's uh, – and you can take days. There are also seminars. And there's food. There's plenty of food. You can, you can eat and you should eat because you got to pace yourself with whiskey. You know, take it easy. Drink a lot of water. And you'll be fine. No problem. You know, don't be scared, you know. But, uh, but definitely tank up on food. Tank up on water. And, you know, have a great time, basically, yeah. Whiskey Advocate is the site, whiskeyadvocate.com. Uh, David Fleming, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. You got it. I'm Tony Katz. First, we just launched a new website, flightsright.gov. Flightsright.gov. It's flight rights. You know how they're going to decide. They're going to teach the airlines a lesson. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. And we're going to force you to pay for someone's uh, hotel. And we're going to all that jab, jazz, jazz, jazz. Uh, Yeah, it's flight rights. It's flight rights. First. We just launched a new website, flightsright.gov, flightsright.gov. Flightsright.gov, sir. Flight raw, forget it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Oh, how many more times is he going to get it wrong? It's my God. All right, that made me laugh. I played it and it made me laugh. <laughs> By the way, AJ is is working the board today. I wouldn't have Letter Kenny in my life without AJ. Years ago, when he was uh, producing my morning show, he's like, Have you ever heard of Letter Kenny? And I said, I didn't even know what, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about. AJ, you changed my life. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad it's still used today because it makes me laugh every time that I get to hear it. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, every single time. Every single time. It's it's unbelievable. And what he's doing with the airlines, I mean, if you ask me, this is not the role of government. But. That's why I'm announcing a second critical step today to protect American consumers. Later this year, my administration will propose a historic new rule that will make it mandatory, not voluntary, but mandatory for all U.S. airlines to compensate you with meals, hotels, taxis, ride shares, or re- and rebooking fees and 
cash, miles, and or travel vouchers whenever they're the ones to blame for the cancellation or delay. And that's all on top of refunding the cost of your ticket. Airline passengers in Canada, for example, in the European Union, and other places already get these compensations. And guess what? It works. One study found that the European Union required airlines to compensate passengers. Why is it always, guess what? What am I, seven? Could you stop it with that? Here is where this is kind of a fascinating conversation, and I was, I was bringing this up earlier. We provide so much government funding to airlines. There's bailouts and all of these things. Maybe, maybe they, maybe this is okay. Now, there's no part of me that feels good about this. It certainly looks to me like this is the kind of thing that you do when you want to buy votes. Next thing you know, he's going to tell people, we're going to pay off your student loans. It's embarrassing. All right, twice in one day. But still, it was necessary. But with all of the handouts, with all of the... Is this, the, is this wrong? Is there a free market conversation to be had when we're not dealing with an industry that... Well, it's actually free market? If every other hour you're getting a government bailout, is it really? I mean, this this is going to take a little time to run around the brain. I will grab some bourbon, all right, whiskey, and uh, make that happen. My thanks to David Fleming, by the way. I appreciate him from whiskeyadvocate.com. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.